This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news. Coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The Wisconsin Supreme Court has ruled that the state health department can release data about outbreaks at specific workplaces. Two years after news organizations, including the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, originally requested this data. The Wisconsin <laughs> Department of Health Services planned to use its data to release information on businesses that were experiencing COVID outbreaks. Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce, the state's largest business lobby group, argued that the information about positive cases was private and could cause harm to businesses, reports the Associated Press. The state's attorneys argued these data do not contain personal information and only includes the name of the businesses and number of employees who tested positive. The Madison Common Council has a busy meeting tonight as it meets to vote on a variety of topics, including a pride-themed rainbow crosswalk and removing the provision that allows protest petitions against development rezoning. In the spirit of LGBTQ plus Pride Month, the council is voting to place a rainbow crosswalk at the top of State Street. According to the Cap Times, this crosswalk will be fully funded by private donations. The council will also vote on removing the provision in rezoning that allows protest petitions. Protest petitions are a mechanism that can be used to require a supermajority of votes to allow for development rezoning in the city. The council is also scheduled to take its final vote on the Metro Network redesign after months of public comments. Finally, a new work group to implement a truth and reconciliation process will be introduced this evening. You can hear more about that later in the show. The meeting starts at 6.30 and can be viewed on the city's website along with the agenda. A contractor caused a, quote, significant natural gas leak, unquote, today after hitting a gas line at a waste drop-off site. According to WISC-TV, firefighters and police officers responded to the site on the city's west side around 1.10 p.m. Crews contained the gas leak by about 2 p.m. The site on South Point Road was closed while crews responded to the leak but has reopened again. Don't let your good puns go to waste. The deadline to submit names for the city's new trash and recycling compactors is today. Trashy McTrashface has already been suggested, but you can drop off any ideas, including pop culture references or puns of celebrity names. You can send your ideas to dropoff at cityofmadison.com. According to the city's website, city staff will then choose a group of finalists and throw out the rest. The public will then vote and choose the final names. And those were your local news headlines. Fire hydrants around the city of Monona may be getting a facelift from a local nonprofit public arts organization. But one local artist is criticizing the terms of the project and bringing forward their concerns about equitable pay for local artists. WORT producer Nate Weggehout has more. A local nonprofit arts organization is under fire after a local artist criticized their pay rates for painting Monona fire hydrants. The Vibrant Hydrant Project is being put on by the Madison Public Arts Project, a Madison-based nonprofit focusing on, what else, creating public art. The project, as it was originally pitched, would have the artist submit their design for approval, prepare and prime the hydrant to get it ready to be painted, and then paint the hydrant itself. The pay for the project? $300. Julian Talercheck, the president and creative director of the nonprofit Madison Public Art Project, says that the project will bring people together to honor and remember those lost during 9-11. She says that she is looking to highlight underrepresented artists in the community and that the project is being fully funded by private donors. As first reported by Tone Madison, local artist T.L. Luke is voicing her concern over the project in a unique way through a comic. 
In the comic, originally posted to her Instagram account, Luke criticized the pay for the project. She says that for this sort of project, artists should be paid at least double what's being offered. For a couple of reasons, even with materials being covered, I don't know if you've seen what the Monona hydrants look like. They're very similar to ours. It's an odd, it's an odd three-dimensional structure. It's going to be now prepped and primed by a separate organization. Originally on the on the original application, the expectations were that the artist was going to have to come in on a separate day before the installation. They were expected to come in for an extra day to prepare the hydrant, which was written explicitly in the original application. Luke posted her comic on Thursday, and by Thursday night, the Madison Public Arts Project revised their application, now offering $400 and stating that volunteers would now come to prepare the hydrant to be painted instead of artists. But Luke says that she is still disappointed that she had to create the comic at all, saying that paying artists fairly should not be controversial. That seems to be the confusion from a lot of people that don't understand why this is controversial. You know, isn't any money good for the arts? Isn't any kind of opportunity a positive thing? You know, this is what I want to break down. If you would pay a house painter more than you would pay an artist, then you are not pricing things accurately. I don't know. I think that people don't realize that, like, a sketch is labor. You know, a, a drawing is labor. Early work on a project is labor. Taylor Check told WORT that she appreciated the transparent conversations that have been brought forward by the project. She says that although they pay as much as they can for each project, they will strive to do better. Luke says that she was driven to speak up about the issue to warn younger artists not to take on projects that don't pay fairly. As a seasoned artist herself, she knows the importance of valuing art. Luke also says that voicing their concern through a comic was a way to bring more eyes on the issue. I wanted to do it because I wanted people to stop and go, oh, somebody had to do labor <laughs> to bring this to us, right? I wanted people to be like, somebody had to make a comic <laughs> to share this. This must be a bigger deal than just a like, this seems like a bad deal, you know, like just written out. I think having something that's like, oh, somebody put time into this and I want to I want to see what this is about. This seems bigger than just another opinionated thing in, in town, right? In 2020, Wisconsin ranked last in the nation in per capita state funding support for arts and culture. In the fiscal year 2022, preliminary data shows Wisconsin moved up to second to last, spending about 14 cents per state resident on arts and culture. That's according to an analysis from the Wisconsin Policy Forum. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie Help. It's Madison Bike Week, a decades-long celebration of bicycling of all kinds. To celebrate, the city has set up bike commuter stations across town with snacks and bicycle safety checks, as well as fun rides throughout the week. We sent our newest reporter, Madeline Plattenberg, out into the field to speak with cyclists on the path about why they love to bike in Madison. Hi, I'm Doug. I'm a building manager for UW. It's pretty easy. There's a lot of great accessible bike trails and paths and bike lanes. So it's a pretty good town for riding your bike. Hi, my name is Ryan Waldman. I'm the city editor with 608 Today. It's good for me and it's even better for the planet. 
and we're also in a gas crisis right now. There's never been a more cost-effective time to be a cyclist. My name is Carlos. I'm a cook here in town. Love it. I pretty much bike anytime I can. I bike to work. Um, I bike around the lakes, go fishing, so it's great for me. My name is Sean Dobbins. I work at a uh, nonprofit group, the National Conference of Bar Examiners. Being able to bike around town is one of the main aspects of what I love about living in Madison. Hi, my name's Kate. I'm a client success manager. I actually get where I'm going quicker than if I take a car. When you have a bike, it's the same amount of time, or you can speed if you're really behind and, and it's, it's safe. My name's Shannon Brokish. I am a domestic engineer. Uh, all the protected bike lanes and bike paths, the infrastructure they have for biking is excellent. Yeah, hi, I'm Laura LaFleur. I actually just started a new job um, as a continuing professional development specialist at Meritor. I think it brings joy into my day every day. It's a great way to start the day, to get the blood pumping, to get to work. And I think Madison's been doing a great job of committing itself to the bike paths, and I hope they do more of that. Hi, I'm Samuel Eberly. I'm a student at the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana. Oh, I love it. It's the best way to get around Madison. I choose biking over a car any day. Hi, I'm Oscar Engel. I am an eighth grade student. School is almost out. I think as far as cities go, it's pretty good. Nice bike paths. It's good for biking. It's just fun to bike. Like you can go with your friends and you don't have to like pollute the environment and destroy our world. Hi, my name's Kyle Hansen. I am a researcher at the UW here. I think bike here on Madison's a real nice place. I, uh, I bike year round, so I have three kids and I have a cargo bike here that I fit all three kids on the back. And uh, so we're a one car family. So we, we really like all the bike facilities we have around here and uh, I'm excited to see more too. I'm Jordan Ellenberg. I'm a math professor at the University of Wisconsin. It's one of the best places to bike I've ever lived. My name is Jeff Steele. I work for the university. I'm a water quality specialist. Well, I've lived a car-free lifestyle for a decade, so I don't own a car. I think Madison has some of the best biking infrastructure in the country, and that's why I'm able to be carless in Madison. My name is Paul Schwartz. I'm a clinical instructor at the School of Nursing at UW. Madison's an awesome place to bike ride, both as a commuter and for athletic sports. My name is David. I am a college student. I live in Middleton and I'm um, living in downtown Madison for the summer. From what I can tell, it's one of the more bike-friendly cities in America, so definitely something I really appreciate. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Madeline Plattenberg. Temperatures in Madison are continuing to fluctuate with high chances of rain into tomorrow. With more about what to expect, here's WORT weather producer Caitlin Davis. It seems that fall has come early, as temperatures in Madison fell between the upper 60s and lower 70s this week. The current temperature is sitting at right around 74 degrees. Winds are coming from the north at 3 miles per hour, and humidity is hovering around 46%. Tree and grass pollen have both dropped down to the moderate category, making it a little more friendly for those with allergies to enjoy the outdoors. The UV index in Madison reached 7 today, which is in the high category. Despite the prominent clouds today, UV rays are still able to break through those clouds and reach your skin, which is a good reminder to apply sunscreen. Be sure to start closing your blinds if you're someone who is able to sleep in during the week. The sun is now rising at 5.18 a.m., 
If you're someone who needs to get up early, you might want to close your blinds at night as the sun is not setting until 8.34 p.m., so we will see the sunlight past that time frame. Lake Monona's water temperature rose 3 degrees from last week. Temperatures are currently sitting at 65 degrees. Although waters are warming up and it may seem like a good time to start kayaking or even swimming, make sure to check the wind speeds for the day as the wind affects the choppiness of the water. Be sure to always take safety precautions before going in the water. In addition, be aware of blue-green algae. Before getting into the water, take a look at the conditions and do not enter the water if you see blue-green algae. This is both harmful to humans and animals. The algae can produce both nerve toxins and liver toxins. These can cause rashes, vomiting, and cold and flu-like symptoms. Animals are especially susceptible to the algae, so before letting your pets drink the water from the lake, be sure to observe it. The same symptoms apply to pets, but also include weakness, difficulty breathing, seizures, and even death. As the sun goes down tonight, temperatures will drop to the low 60s, and moving into tomorrow, it is very likely that we could be seeing rain showers from early morning continuing all day. The UV index will drop very low tomorrow, but coming into Thursday, it is likely that we will be back in the high category. Thursday is looking to be partly cloudy, with temperatures increasing to the mid-70s. Rain is possible both Friday and Saturday, with temperatures looking to sit between the low to mid-70s. With your WORT weather report, I'm producer Caitlin Davis. It's now 6.21 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The Madison Common Council is gathering in just a few minutes for a packed meeting that will address the Metro Network redesign, loads of liquor licenses, and the formation of a new work group to address racial equality. This truth and reconciliation process will research ways to address and repair harms put upon Madison's Black community. Earlier today, WRT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with District 6 Alder Brian Benford, who will introduce the truth and reconciliation process. This is just a portion of the full conversation, which can be found at WORTFM.org. So, Brian, later tonight you will be introducing a truth and reconciliation process for the city of Madison. So just sort of starting things off, what is a truth and reconciliation process? I think most of uh, your listeners and most folks think about truth and reconciliation processes. They think of South Africa at the end of apartheid and uh, uh, Desmond Tutu's efforts. And we also think back on nation states like in Latin America and then more recently in Canada as they uh, created uh, a commission to look at uh, indigenous abuses. And then throughout the United States, uh, some cities like Philadelphia, Boston, and San Francisco their DAs have come together to create truth and reconciliation uh, commissions to look at uh, the impacts of systemic racism within the criminal justice system. And then just uh, last year in October, the city of Minneapolis uh, began a truth and reconciliation process through their city council. So uh, essentially, it's an opportunity for uh, communities to come together to pause, to allow healing, to uh, reflect on past injustices, to listen to those that have been impacted by that, and then 
through that process to uh, reconcile, to look at uh, public policy and uh, social changes that would help traditionally marginalized people impacted by centuries of systemic racism. And then sort of looking back about a decade ago, there was a race to equity report uh, that was released that looked at sort of the state of racial disparities here in Dane County, and it found all sorts of racial disparities here. And sort of looking back on that report, just very briefly, can you sort of go over, just to remind people what that report sort of said, and then what sort of has been done to address what that report found uh, almost a decade ago? Well, thank you, Nate, for asking that question. You said it almost a decade ago. And uh, as I poured over that report uh, doing my research along with other folks from the Madison Equal Opportunities Commission, as we looked at uh, a tangible way to take immediate action, uh, sadly, uh, that report really bears out that we live in a tale of two cities. So not much has changed, regrettably. And so when you ask that question, uh, it's not lost on me that in 2019, the ratio of the annual household income of the top 20% to the bottom 20% of households in Madison was almost 5 to 1. So the people that I serve at the UW-Madison Odyssey Project, the vast majority of them are navigating poverty. They're navigating uh, lack of services across the board and facing these disparities in every facet of their life. So uh, you can talk about criminal justice, that uh, in 2019, black residents only made up 5.5% of Dane County's population, yet 45, almost 46% of the individuals incarcerated in Dane County Jail are black. And the list goes on. Uh, so I believe, especially coming after the last two and a half years with the pandemic, and uh, the pandemic has shed a spotlight on all the inequities within our community, that this allows for an opportunity for people from different backgrounds to come together to uh, heal, to begin the healing process, and to raise the level of awareness of these horrendous disparities that makes us one of the worst places in the United States for African Americans. Now you've sort of mentioned it a few times. It's not a real secret that there's pretty massive racial disparities here in Wisconsin, sort of as a whole and here in Dane County as well. So I want to ask why, why sort of introduce this now, looking at the current landscape and looking back and looking ahead, why do you think that it is important for this to happen now? That's a beautiful question, and I think that's at the cross. I believe now is the time that we have to do it. I had mentioned, and all of us, regardless of our backgrounds, uh, this pandemic has wrecked havoc on our lives and offered us nothing but uncertainty. And after Mr. Floyd's murder, I think many communities around the United States are diving deeper around social justice issues. And sometimes it comes down to the notion, do we pay for the sins of our fathers? And I believe this process doesn't paralyze anyone in guilt, but really in a loving and nurturing and honest way, ask people to look at how their current privilege uh, was benefited uh, by the sins of their fathers and uh, should we take action. And I think with the summer of social justice after Mr. Floyd's murder, 
that so many individuals, wonderful individuals in the city of Madison are grappling with uh, issues of privilege, issues of systemic racism, poverty, oppression, and we want to make a change. I believe that the vast majority of people in the city of Madison really want this to be the model city where everybody can reach their full potential. I've been talking with Brian Benford, District 6 Alder for the city of Madison, who will introduce a truth and reconciliation process at tonight's Common Council meeting. Brian, thank you so much for talking with me here today. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Take care. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. While classes may be on hiatus at UW-Madison, the Cardinal Call returns for a special summer update from campus. This week, producer Hope Carnop spoke with Samantha Benish, last year's Daily Cardinal Life and Style Editor, about her thoughts on finally becoming a senior on campus. It really just shows how fast time can go here. And all of those little moments that we think are not important actually are some of the most important moments in our college experience. Hello and welcome back to the Cardinal Call, your dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup. The 2021-22 academic year has come to a close. To celebrate, we're sharing a story about a common realization that students have as the school year ends. There's a strange limbo that exists around this time. We're not sure if we immediately become a senior, or if we're still a junior, or if we should call ourselves rising or incoming seniors. Please enjoy this piece by Samantha Benish, our Life and Style editor last year. It's titled, Wait, I'm a Senior Now? The way that time passes, quite honestly, astonishes me. We grow up as adolescents, desperately yearning for the future, just wanting to be one year older than the last. Yet, the older we get, the more we wish to turn back the clock and return to what once was. I still vividly remember moving into my freshman year dorm. I remember attending my first big lecture and my first real college party. I remember all of it, all of the little moments that made my first year at the University of Wisconsin-Madison so special. I also remember the not so good feelings, feeling anxious about my first in-person midterm, mustering up the courage to talk to others in my discussion section or coming to terms with my freshman year ending because of some new disease sweeping the nation. In those moments, I desperately wished time would pass more quickly. All I wanted was to move on to the next hour, the next day, the next month. Yet, as soon as those moments were over, I realized just how much I wanted them back. It is only after an experience has passed that we look beyond the hardships. Eating alone gained me confidence. Stressing for an exam rewarded me with a good grade. Inviting that girl in my hall to lunch granted me a best friend. I'm just starting to understand this all now as a rising senior here at UW. I am a senior. Wow, that feels very strange to say. Despite COVID-19 snatching away a year and a half of my time here, I'm thankful to say that the past three years have been kind to me. I'm incredibly close to my freshman year friends and I only continue to meet new ones. I've gotten to join some of the best clubs on campus and I've racked up over six internships. I've attended some wild Badger games and tried some of the best food in Madison. 
For my final year here, I don't want to worry about the minor details. I just want to enjoy it. I want to enjoy staying out late, waking up early, attending my lectures, and simply watching a sunset at Memorial Union. Whether you are a rising freshman, senior, or anything in between, I urge you to do the same. Don't wish it away. Embrace every struggle, every victory, and every jump around in Camp Randall you can get. Because one day, there won't be a first time for something. There will be a last. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us, Sam, and welcome to the show. Of course. Thanks for having me. So I think this is the first time that we featured life and style on this show. Can you describe the topics that LNS writes about and how you think it fits into our newspaper? Yeah, so life and style is awesome because any idea is a good idea. I've had my writers talk about some of the best food they've had on State Street, um, a concert they attended, what um, is trending on social media right now. You really can write about anything. And I really encourage writers to come with brand new ideas because life and style is always expanding. We actually have the most amount of writers um, of any desk on the newspaper. So it's, yeah, it's really interesting and it's a place that any writer can come and write about any topic they want. Why did you decide to write this story and what got you thinking about this topic? Yeah, so I have been really reflecting um, on the upcoming year just because ending my junior year, it went by so quickly. Um, definitely one of the fastest years that I've gone through. And it kind of made me realize that I only have one more year left. And so I was just sitting at home, you know, away from campus, and I was thinking about my freshman year and how I was so excited to be a freshman, but now I'm so sad to be a senior. And it really just shows how fast time can go here. And all of those little moments that we think are not important actually are some of the most important moments in our college experience. So I was just reflecting on that. Do you think that the pandemic has also affected how college students think about how time has been passing in their experience, either more slowly or more quickly? A hundred percent. I think there is a big balance between that because when we realized that we only had one more year left, we were kind of thinking about that time sophomore year when everything was online and we just wanted to get through that moment and get on to junior year. But in those moments, I wish I would have kind of appreciated it more because it was still a year of college. So it's kind of weird because you think you want it to be done, but then at the same time, it's still like a vital moment in your college experience. So I definitely thought it was one of the hardest times of my life, but at the same time, it was good because I was still in college and I got to experience um, some of the moments that made UW special too. So this story is going to be featured in our special issue for SOAR, which is orientation for new students. Do you have any advice for freshmen or even anyone visiting campus this summer about places to visit or things to try out? Oh, boy. Well, that's a tough question because there's so much um, at Madison that makes it so unique. I would say for incoming freshmen or even visitors, definitely go to Memorial Union and get some food there, sit by the lake really take it in because at Memorial Union, everybody goes there. It's like a staple of UW. Um, so that would be a good thing for the summer. Walk around State Street, try new food. That's one thing that I've loved about coming to Madison is you can try as much food as you want and they have everything here. And then for freshmen in the fall, um, I really encourage them to just try new things. Put yourself out there. It is really scary. I'm not saying it's not. It's 
one of the scariest things you'll ever do, but try something new, introduce yourself to someone, get yourself out of your comfort zone because it's worth it. Is there anything else that you'd like to say about your piece? Um, I hope that it reflects everyone going into their senior year because I know I'm feeling this and I know I'm not alone. So if you are feeling like this way, just remember to take it all in and enjoy it while it lasts. Thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your article, Sam. Thanks so much, Hope. In other campus news, Rebecca Blank, an iconic figure on campus for almost nine years, left her post as chancellor at the end of May. UW-Madison Provost John Scholz will serve as interim chancellor for part of the summer. Chancellor-designee Jennifer Manukin will start on August 4th. Manukin was previously the dean of the UCLA Law School. Manukin has expressed appreciation for the Wisconsin idea, a concept that describes how education and research at UW-Madison should extend throughout the state. Republican state lawmakers criticized the hire, with Assembly Speaker Robin Voss calling it a partisan selection. Tommy Thompson, who recently departed the role as UW System President, also questioned Manukin and told the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel he hoped she would not bring a, quote, California philosophy. New UW System President Jay Rothman, who started the job last week, said he was impressed with Manukin. Rothman also told reporters he will recommend continuing the tuition freeze for in-state students and that the free speech survey will be sent out during the fall semester. That survey drew controversy in the spring and led to the resignation of UW-Whitewater's chancellor. That's all for our Cardinal Call. We'll be back for another installment a month from now. The story you heard today is featured in our special print edition for SOAR. If you want to pick up a copy, we have a map of our stand locations under the About Us tab at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. It's now 6.42 p.m. and you're listening to the WORT Local News. On tonight's Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg offers an update about all the happenings at the Dane County Humane Society this month. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we'll be doing an update about the Wildlife Center for the month of May, because it's been a while since we've done an update, and I'm sure many of our WORT listeners out there are wondering what the heck are they doing out at the Wildlife Center. Well. I thought it'd be fun to, this time around, kind of share what our admissions have been like. Not only just the species, but like how many patients are we actually seeing and and what are some of our favorite highlights? Well, first of all, I should mention that in the month of May alone, we have admitted 464 animals. Now, it's only June 7th, and we are definitely high up there in our species admissions. We are already almost to 1,000 patients since the start of the year. So in a comparison, by the end of May in last year, 
we had 836 animals admitted. So we are definitely about 100 or so patients ahead of where we normally are, which is pretty incredible, considering that we came off of a COVID pandemic year, and now we've got the highly pathogenic avian influenza that's been going through the United States. So from a month-to-month kind of comparison, uh, it's really only been about a 2% increase in our admission rates just for the month, but that's you know more on track for how our species intake would normally be because we now have baby ducklings and we have raptor intake that has been happening and we still have our biosecurity measures in place and at a very high standard of care level because we are still worried about transmitting any sort of disease to other species because we work with so many different ones. So our waterfowl and our raptor species are the highest risk patients to either have, contract, or transmit hylopathic avian influenza. So we are in full gowns, gears, Tyvek suits, which are large and cumbrous and very hot to work in, and shoe covers and masks and everything else. But the cool parts of that is that we are working with a number of species, including red-tailed hawks. We have great horned owls. We've been working with screech owls, actually many of those babies being renested this year, which has been really great. And actually a snowy owl that was emitted uh, last month in the month of May that has tested negative twice for highly pathogenic avian influenza, which is amazing. And we don't really see snowy owls much in the summer. This is only the second time our facility has seen a bird like that of the northern species that have been around during the summer months. So it's very unusual, but we are definitely treating that bird for a chronic infection from a bad wound that's in the chest cavity. So really neat for our summer interns to get the chance to work with snowy owls. That's not something they usually get to see in the summer. And then we also have three fox kits in care, one that had a surgery for a broken leg and the other two that were found as orphaned kits with avian influenza. And then we had some amazing releases. We had 66 releases last month, which is a lot of our turtles from overwintering. So we had some painted and some snapping turtles. We had uh, one of the adult red foxes that had mange, a couple different snake species, uh, Eastern milk snake and garter snake. And we actually released seven of our raptors and we had four Canada geese that were able to be wild fostered with new parents. So that has been super successful. And then we've also transferred a few. We are working with a lot of our partners in the local area, such as Wisconsin Wild Care, which is a wild mammal rehabilitation specialist nonprofit. So they took a number of our really itty bitty neonate mammals, like, you know, some of the rabbits that are eyes closed or squirrels that are still naked and don't have fur, possums especially, because they are just so delicate when they're very little and first born. Uh, so we do um, try to give them to other rehabilitators that might have the ability to perform overnight care uh, because many of your mammal species are going to have you know need of mom's milk overnight so maybe you have squirrels in a nest box and they're nursing from their mom you know they can wake up any time in the night and snuggle up next to her and drink some milk uh, whereas birds they're just going to sleep all the way overnight and the parents sit and brood on them so you know we're not necessarily able to wake up every two hours or so so we appreciate the dedicated folks that do that all throughout the night and all throughout the summer for our mammal species here in our state where we do some of that but we have 
4,000 animals that generally come in per year, and a lot of them are birds. So we are working more of the, you know, seven to seven types of hours. We've also got 118 patients that are in care, uh, and that was in the month of May. We now have 168 as of today. So it is ever increasing with so many different species. We've seen a lot of our different duck species, so wood ducks and mallards and Canada geese, but we also have a good number of hooded mergansers this year, which has been really fun. We only had a couple last year, but we've had quite a few more this year because they do co-brood at times with wood ducks in their nest boxes. So sometimes it's mixed flocks. We have had our red-winged blackbirds, which we've talked about in previous segments. A lot of house finch babies this year. So our nestlings are sitting in their nests and our incubators are full with these little babies. We have, you know, sliding doors with mirrored glass on them so they can see their own reflection, but they hopefully can't really see us. We're feeding them, hand feeding them insects and other types of dietary items every half an hour. And they will be with us for many, many weeks. It's usually at least a month until they're maybe even weaned in any sort of sense from hand feeding, which is pretty amazing. So lots of dedicated people helping to feed them, along with American robins and cardinals and grackles. And we even have one tiny downy woodpecker baby who is very vocal and kind of hilarious in his incubator. Uh, It is a male because he has a bright red spot on the back of his head, which is pretty cute when they're at that scraggly infant stage. So those are some of my favorite songbirds that we have in care, other than a few of those raptors that I already mentioned, and a good number of turtles that have been coming in due to being hit by cars. So we have been harvesting eggs already this season, and we will be hatching them hopefully in the fall. So they sit in a little container of vermiculite water and a a really, it's a rigorous protocol of how to hatch them at the right temperature. It's going to be really exciting to see how many turtle babies we'll get this year compared to previous years. And then last, we've had a good number of mammals, lots of bunnies this year. We were just releasing our last group today. Uh, and then we have some 13 line ground squirrels and chipmunks and a couple of other species besides our foxes because, you know, mammals are, are a really fun part of the summer season as well. We had to focus a lot on birds and turtles most recently with the COVID pandemic, but uh, it's great to get a lot of variety in there and try to help as many animals as we possibly can. So that's what we've got. Uh, We also have our wonderful core staff, our volunteers, our interns. We have 16 summer interns on that are training and learning right now and just doing an absolutely excellent job uh, learning their first areas. And so their training period is complete the first six weeks and now they're kind of in the thick of it learning about all the different types of rehabilitation methods from feeding to husbandry to handling methods. It's all part of their education, learning about wildlife and how to appropriately work with them and get them back out into the community, hopefully as successful individuals. So we're very excited to have this whole crew on this summer and looking forward to all the other species we're probably going to see here in the next couple of months. Uh, So we appreciate listener support and, you know, listening to our stories about the wildlife that we care for here at Dane County Humane Society. So Thanks again for listening uh, to our update segment about the month of May here and what kind of species we're seeing and and what has happened in our facility from releases to rescues and renesting and other things. So thanks so much for listening. This has been Wildlife Weekly. This week on Radio Astronomy, host Michael Rosenthal tells a tale about mysterious radio circles emanating from the reaches of deep space. Up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's a circle? 
What do astronomers do when they see something that they've never seen before? I'm Michael Nikandra Rosenthal, and today on Radio Astronomy, we're going to be talking about odd radio circles. When astronomers design the next generation of telescopes, they're often looking for ways to push the frontiers of objects that we already know exist. For example, the James Webb Space Telescope is larger and more sensitive to study large samples of galaxies further away than any near-infrared space telescope that came before it. But we already knew that galaxies existed far away from us. Likewise, the recently completed NUID spectrograph was designed to measure the velocities of exoplanets more precisely than ever before. But we already knew those exoplanets should be there. Sometimes, though, new instruments reveal entirely new phenomena that astronomers never expected they would see. This happened a couple of years ago, in 2019, when astronomers discovered these strange objects, dubbed odd radio circles, that they're just now beginning to understand. Back in 2019, astronomers were looking at observations taken with the Australian Square Kilometer Array Pathfinder Telescope, or ASCAP for short. Now, ASCAP is a radio telescope, meaning it measures light and wavelengths thousands of times longer than what we can see with our eyes. Observations taken with ASCAP captured a lot of objects that we were already familiar with in the radio sky. Huge elongated jets of fast-moving electrons coming from distant radio galaxies, and compact blobs of radio emission coming from star formation or black holes, for example. But they also saw, for the very first time, large, nearly circular rings of radio emission without any clear galaxy of origin. The astronomers looking at these observations called them odd radio circles, or orcs, because at the time, that's all we really knew about them. Not only do we not know much about these objects, but there are extremely few of them, with only five orcs having been confirmed so far. Partially, this is because they're extremely faint. So faint, in fact, that we could only see them once we'd built ASCAP, which is why they were discovered so recently. Furthermore, because we only had radio rings to look at without any obvious galaxy counterpart in the optical or infrared that we've studied the sky in before, it was hard to tell what exactly they were. Critically, we couldn't even tell how far away they were, which means we don't have an idea of how physically big they are, only how big they appear in their angle in the sky. That'll change this year, though, when a team of astronomers led by Professor Ray Norris of Western Sydney University combined their radio observations with deep optical images from the Dark Energy Survey. They identified, sitting at the center of each orc, a faint, previously undetected galaxy. But to their shock, this raised even more questions. Remember when I said that we needed to know the distances to the orcs in order to know how physically large they are? Well, if the orcs and the galaxies that were seen inside of them are at the same distance, then they are billions of light years away from us which would make each orc up to a million light years in diameter. For reference, that's around 20 times the size of the Milky Way. So the question now is, how do you get such huge objects coming out of these tiny faint galaxies? Well, Professor Norris and his team has speculated that these huge rings need to be powered by rare energetic events, like two supermassive black holes smashing into each other, or bursts of billions of stars forming in short periods of time. Both of these events produced powerful enough explosions that they could blow up bubbles of gas from the galaxy into the surrounding space, and they're possibly rare enough to explain why we've seen so few orcs to date. Right now, the jury is still out on which of these explanations, if any of them, is the true cause for these strange objects. But we have hope for figuring it out in the future. ASCAP, while it's an amazing instrument in its own right, was built as a pathfinder experiment for the Square Kilometer Array an even bigger and more sensitive radio telescope currently under construction in South Africa. In the coming decade or so, 
we may discover more and more orcs, and in doing so, start to understand what these objects actually are. That's all for this episode of Radio Astronomy. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Sophie Leahy. Your reporter tonight was Madeline Plattenberg. Your weather reporter was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the radio astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at The Daily Cardinal. Nate Wagehout produced this newscast. Shally Pittman is the news director at WRT. Andy Height was your on-air fundraiser. Thank you to him and to you for pledging your support this hour. I'm your host, and thanks again for everyone who called in with their pledge of support this hour. You make it happen. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish Language News with Nuestro Patio. Good night. W-O-R-T Madison.